How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I am Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 181. Oh, exciting. It's an exciting episode, Zeke. Yeah, as you were saying before we started recording, we are on the, now the slow road. Slow but surely road. I've been using that expression a lot, though. 200th episode. Slowly but surely. It's a good milestone. Yeah. We would have only done two of its kind. The per hundred slot. That feels like a long time ago. Does that are we gonna have to make a two hundredth shirt? Yeah, before the one oh one to to two hundred films on the back. Yeah. Yeah. That limited edition collection. <laughs> I still remember when um this is one oh six when we interviewed um Desmond and Stephen for the crossing and as we're walking to the studio, I felt weird because like I was sort of talking to Desmond, who's like directly behind me. So I keep trying to turn to mm-hmm. you know eye contact. You know the good thing. Um, and it was like, stop turning. I'm trying to read the movies on the back of your shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was a fun time. But um, but that w- that was a while ago. Not quite the fifties, which we're no. getting to soon. But but uh, it was a little while ago. That was a, I thought I could. Better segue. Well, that's not a bad segue. Jake, do you have any trivia could've, for me? It could have been better, but I'll, I'll take it. From our film of the week. I do, I do. And in fact, I'm <laughs> trying to live segue in my brain, but it's just not working. We're going to go back, not to the recording of the Dry Podcast, but a little further back than mm-hmm. that, to March 2020, of course, around the time when COVID was really spreading worldwide, especially in Australia. And of course, this is where... Uh, famously, at least uh, amongst our circle, as Australians, where Tom Hanks and his wife, Rita Wilson, got COVID in March of 2020 while filming in Australia this very film, which I didn't realise at the time that this was the film they were shooting. But uh, There you go. There you go. And I've seen some funny comments about it potentially affecting Tom Hanks' performance in this film. <laughs> but we'll get into that very shortly. We, we can absolutely. Um, what about yours, Zeke? Well, the, uh, the co-star, or you would rather the ticket marquee star in the Elvis film should be Elvis. Uh, and this is obviously <laughs> played by, in this particular version, mm. Austin Butler, which, to be honest, up until this point, I didn't know too much about Austin Butler. Yeah, neither. I'm actually just going to quickly look at his filmography. Why you uh, go I ahead? I think and he was anything? a Disney star. Oh, okay. Disney kid stars. Fair enough. Um, but to add a little degree of authenticity, as we can argue what authenticity has to do with this film Ooh, in the second half. Okay. But Austin Butler and Elvis are actually sixteenth cousins, twice removed. Oh wow! So, was that part of the casting criteria? <laughs> no. Well, apparently, other um, people that auditioned for the role of Elvis include. Uh, Ansel Elgort, who was in West oh, Side yeah. Story. They probably uh, uh, did okay by not casting yeah, him in Miles this Teller, one. Aaron Taylor-Johnson, and Harry Styles, which, you know, oh. I mean, that's an interesting this is, collection this of... Those are all very interesting, yeah. Uh, Aaron Taylor-Johnson as, as Elvis, wow. Yeah. I think I think they went with the right choice out of those names, even though Austin Butler is the one I'm least familiar with, but he was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and will star in Dune Part 2. There we go. There we go. Jake, obviously being a contemporary release, Baz mm. Luhrmann's latest, this film would not be behind us on the wall. But would it no. be on your personal 1,100 films to watch before you die? Um, I will answer solely, not, not a commentary on the quality of the film, but more so just its relevancy amongst all musical biopics. I'd say no. It probably, I don't know if it 
deserves to be on the the poster in the sense that there's a lot of tropes and a lot of beats in this film that have we've seen done before many many times and i don't think the film overly does anything interesting enough for it to warrant you know a top 1100 films you must watch poster uh but zeke would you agree with that assessment i would okay there's not even a debate. This film does not make the 1100. And mm. we can talk a little bit more about the film, where it sits in the musical biopic genre, and why we probably arrived at similar grades sure, um, yeah. from it. But before we jump into that, Jake, what have you watched in the last week? Um, not a lot. I watched a couple of things. I finished Stranger Things 4, as you would call it, not season 4, mm-hmm. simply 4, um, with its volume 2 drop, which is simply just the last two episodes of the season. Uh, which collectively were nearly four hours long. I think the last episode is about two hours, 22 minutes, um, which is just absurdly long. So I did sort of, you know, make a cuppa, sit down, prepped for these last two episodes. And um, I think, for me, it's the point I made a couple of weeks ago that it, it just reinforced that point that they really should have just released the show like in weekly increments of one episode mm. a week. Um, not even just for pure appreciation of the amount of insane production value um, that actually goes into each episode. It's just mind-boggling, the fact that there is just an episode of TV that is two and a half hours long and just completely laced with insane period production design and special effects and all these you know epic moments with lots happening and lots of different characters and sets and, and makeup and the music and everything. Um, but also just the fact that I know a lot of people, including yourself, Zeke, that haven't even had time to catch up mm. <laughs> with the extravagance and size of all of these episodes that they should have just released them weekly. Also because Netflix crashed this past weekend, which I don't know how often that happens, but I don't think it's very often. No, I don't think it is either. And I think it speaks more to the fact that obviously people love Stranger Things, but each season, and you, you've obviously seen the other three seasons, so you can attest to this, they're pretty self-contained overall. Mm-hmm. Like, there's obviously ongoing threads and mysteries and character arcs. Uh, but generally, you get to the last episode of any given season, and they sort of wrap a lot of things up quite neatly. There's a lot of scenes at the end where characters are hugging and reminiscing and, you know, oh, we'll, we'll go on to the next adventure. Which, compare that to what happened this past weekend, where we sort of had a break in the middle of the season... So in terms of our investment in the show, there's a lot more character arcs that are still in the mm. midpoint. There's a lot of uh, more immediate danger for a lot of the characters and a lot of the arcs that are going on. So I think that sort of con- contributed more to people's desire to the desperation to watch these last two as soon as yep. it came out. And I think, I, I don't know, I just think Netflix would be smart to just release it all weekly for, for all of those reasons. Uh, but, but in terms of the actual show, like I said, I really enjoyed it. The production value alone is just incredible i love the similar commitment to the west craven influence even the lightning bolt synth sounds that are like laced throughout the score i gotta say so i i know you're not up to it zeke you've only seen the first episode i believe <laughs> yeah just haven't built the steam up for it yet unfortunately yeah no, no i mean that's totally fair but um again if they released a weekly <laughs> maybe you'll yeah. be more inclined to watch you know the bits of it at a time that are available to you but um, have you heard at all about the Kate Bush song and how it's number one because of Stranger Things? Have you heard about any of this? No. Okay, no. so the, the fourth episode of this previous season, which I probably would agree, and a lot of people say that it's probably the best episode of the whole series, um, does end with this big climactic moment that involves a Kate Bush song running up the hill. And it is a great 
sequence in the show. It mm-hmm. is really, really well done. And like I said, Kate Bush has sort of completely risen up to the top of the charts solely because of this thing from the scene from Stranger Things. It's kind of like never-ending story in the last season and how that kind of exploded. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed that they used it quite a lot again in the last episode. Which is like, I wonder if they're doing that just because of the influence it's had. Mm. And they had a few weeks to redo the sound mix and put it back in. Because it's like, that's meant to be Max's song. And then they kind of just use it as like the climax to the whole season over and over again. Mm. I thought that was a bit strange. Um, But in terms of where the series is going, that the fifth season will be the last. Um, I think there's a lot of cool things that happen at the end of this last season that does create a bit of a ripple effect for the okay. entire show and, and the mystery of the Upside Down. And that is a that is a pun intended use of the word ripple effect for those who mm-hmm. know what I'm referring to. But I think I think a lot of the cards are on the table. The overarching mystery of um, obviously like the, the, the Demi-Gorgons and the Mind Flare and the Upside Down and how Vecna comes into it. Like all of these things have tied together now. All the cards are on the table. We know... I don't think there's any mystery left to solve. I think it's just sort of leading up to much like Harry Potter, where the last one is just like the the face-off between Harry and Voldemort. It's kind of leading to that, Mm -hmm. which they used that similar poster structure for this season four part two, but I think they're really going to go home into it and and perhaps with a a shorter, final, more climactic fifth and final season. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like a lot of the chips that they've laid out there, but um, I don't think it's a perfect show, but I think think the production value overall just keeps it so... um, lovable and memorable and and i appreciate it for that reason but yeah what about you zeke have you watched anything in the last week yeah look it's been a quiet week uh i can't <laughs> say i'm in the film week i've that's the only real thing i've majorly touched on in terms of films i've watched yep. uh i did manage to sneak in the season premiere for westworld oh very nice um i think episode two would be out by the time yeah it's out every monday yeah so there you go. by the time this goes up it'll be up I did say I'd be. I went home straight and watched oh, it. Oh, very good, very good. Um, what did you think? Obviously, look, it's so interesting because it was much like Stranger Things. It felt so long since I watched season three that <laughs> I was like, "Oh man, where do we where do we finish off?" And there were some major events that occurred at the end of the third season, and this is now I think four or five years later, mm-hmm. um, and is is very intriguing. I think. After after the fact, I remember I was just watching something and then Foxtel ads came up and they had a Westworld like ad for season four and you're oh, sort yeah. of seeing the final form of human-machine convergence. Yeah. Um, so it, it's quite interesting. I know some people weren't a big fan of season three because it was so far removed from the first two seasons, which were obviously based in Westworld, right? Um, the theme park and... I didn't mind. I, I thought the inclusion of like Aaron Paul was a was a fresh casting, and to be honest, it's it, it will be interesting to see where this season. It was very like what I like about all of the episodes of Westworld, particularly their first season, a uh, first episode of each season, is they mm. they obviously are very much very disjointed episodes. They often have just a plethora of questions that then get unveiled over the course of the season. Sure. So yeah, I think it's a long time away before i can determine if that was a good episode or not so, oh I but see. I'm, so I'm, you kind of have to return to it once you have a lot more context of the season as yeah, it plays out yeah especially in season two and three they were very disjointed at the start and then you're sort of left to go okay aaron paul ends up being kind of the catalyst in right. the season three but obviously now as an established character and 
yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how that follows. Yeah, I think there was actually kind of a similar thing or a similar response to uh, Season 6 of Better Call Saul, which is almost back. They've done the first seven episodes where there was a lot of people, even diehard fans of the show, that were like, this is just so slow-paced, especially for what's meant mm-hmm. to be the last season. And um, I think it was one of those things where I, I was never in doubt. I was like, I know it's leading to something. I know it's leading to something. It feels yeah. like they're spending so much time on this thing that seems otherwise pretty simple and inconsequential to the wider plot. It mm. obviously does become that. And really, the only faith I had that it would be is because it was the last season. I'm like, okay, well, they're not dumb. They're not just wasting time. This is going to be a longer season yeah, than any other season. So I had that trust. To my knowledge, creators. this is the last season of Westworld. Oh, okay. So... I didn't know that. They're not trying to overstay their welcome, mm. obviously. I think outside of the first season, none of them... Like, they've, they've obviously switched between what was once John, written by Jonathan Nolan has mm. now been kind of completely handed over to Lisa Joy, and I think she's done a really good job with it. Yeah. Um, the it just It's tonally slowly shifting a different... A, a character that you haven't seen since the end of season two came back at the start of season four. Mm, interesting. Which, which was cool... Uh, Predictable. I kind of saw it coming. Right. Um, but I am happy to have, have him back in the show because I think his character complements Rachel Evan Wood's character mm. really well. So <sighs> Just even you saying her name is like, I've got to watch this show. Yeah. Because I love Kajelina so much. Yeah. It just sounds really good. The cast the is what keeps you coming. Like, yeah. Like, Ed Harris has the opening scene for season four, and you're just like, oh, yeah, I forget. Ed Harris is still in this show. Like,. <laughs> And it's a testament to the show because I really do think the first season is just lifted by the performances from Jeffrey Wright and mm. and Anthony Hopkins and Ed Harris, who are more established stars, particularly Hopkins and, and yeah, Harris, of course, yeah. were the ones that really carried the first season of the show. Because at the time, you know, at the time Rachel Evan Wood was sort of a, a little bit of an unknown commodity. Right. Um, and I, I mean, it's, we've kind of talked about it with... Um, with uh, God, Succession, and mm. how a lot of those actors, like shows, like particularly the stuff through HBO and Fox and Foxtel and stuff like that, like the binge sort of shows, they really elevate these dramatic actors. Mm. Like it's taken like Sarah Snook's career, especially. I think it's to a whole new level. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Stuff. Well, so. that's it. I kind of see her now, and even I forget her name, but who plays Jerry? In I see her in a lot of other shows now. And I'm yeah. like, oh, that's awesome! Like she's so great and. Obviously, Brian Cox is like a classic theatrical actor, but that has to be like the role of his career as well in Succession. Yeah. I would yeah. honestly, up until um, The Father, I would have said that that season that Hopkins is in Westworld is like some of his best work. Wow. Like yeah. it's phenomenal. Um, but then The Father came out. Yeah. And He's getting he, better with and obviously you've got Sons of the Lambs <laughs> too, so it's like, um, but yeah I, yeah, I would say, honestly, his back end... Very solid, so. Yeah. Incredible. Um, and he's in his 90s. That's 90s or 80s? Uh, late 80s, I think. Okay, he's 86 yeah. and won the Oscar at 86. Wow. Incredible. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no, quiet week overall, though. Nah, but, that, that's so I'll throw it back enough. to you. Yeah, well, the only other thing I saw, and I'm going to tie this into career updates ever so slightly. Beautiful. So uh, I think we're going to have a nice little segue there. I'm making up for it, Zeke. Mm-hmm. making up for it not so much by constantly repeating and making note of our segues but i will make up for it i promise i watched bend it like beckham oh boy 2002 film um which i know we sort of heard about in third year i don't think either of us ended up watching it no. but it was brought up quite a bit uh, it turns out it was actually on binge 
So it was actually very easy for me to find. Okay. Um, now, there is a reason, again, I'll get into it into the career updates. There's a very specific reason why I wanted to watch this film, and I got it in before this podcast. So I'm going to have a week to meld and digest over. I don't, it's not the kind of film you need a week to digest over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, I'm kind of watching it for a very particular research uh, effort. But in terms of the actual film itself, it's a very simple, very effective sports comedy about a young girl, Jess uh, Minda, or you know, people just call her Jess typically, who... Um, secretly plays soccer despite her Indian parents' wishes. So she's sort of torn between those two different cultures of her traditionalist uh, parents and then sort of the uh, the young, bratty, Western teen mm. friends that she has that are you know, very mean girls, Muriel's Wedding-esque, where a lot of them sort of have synchronized gasp and, and gossip laughs and that kind of... So it plays with a lot of that, but the consistency between those two different culture clashes is just the obsession over boys or presenting to boys mm. it's like her parents want her you know to find a boy to get married to all of her friends uh, you know a little bit more uh, western minded in their culture about about boys and sort of mingling around and and mm. um that whole scenario so it's cool that there's sort of that glue there but i really enjoyed it i thought it was really fun really effective it, a lot of the social commentary i thought was really nice mm. really interesting i like the way it showed um i mean it goes back to the title bender like beckham where she has an obsession specifically with beckham and it would do the thing where she's it sort of frames her in bed as she's talking out loud wondering her thoughts almost like writing in a diary but she's actually just talking to her posters of beckham and then they do the forrest gump thing at the start where they sort of insert her um digitally into like an old game where she's actually part of the LA Galaxy team playing with Beckham and scores the winning goal and everyone cheers. and So I just thought there was a lot of little clever things they did in the film. So we do get a Dave Beckham go. cameo. We do, yeah. we do, right at the very end, um, but also part of archival footage, I believe. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, I very much enjoyed the film. Now, the reason, if you don't mind music, segueing into our career updates right off the bat. No worries, go for it, <laughs> go for it. Is And I sort of teased it last week, but it was nearly two-hour episode last week, so I'm mm. kind of glad we didn't go too much into it. And I still can't really go too much into it. It hasn't progressed as much as I hoped it would by now. But I am working, and I've talked about this off the show, Hizik, so you know a little more than I'm going to dwell mm. to our audience, but I've been working with a, a writing partner on a feature pitch, uh, sort of like the Stranger Things visual document that they made to pitch the show to Netflix. We're doing mm-hmm. something very similar with that uh, in regards to a comedy that me and this writing partner have been working on. And the reason I watched Bandit Like Beckham is because there is a whole uh, sort of uh, culture clash thing going on as part of the film that I thought would be good to take little references from Bandit Like Beckham, particularly like little screen grabs so the people who read the document know what it's coming from. Um, but yeah, that's in development and it's really exciting. We got a, the legalities being written up for the 50-50 partnership and then off it goes into the ether and hopefully someone bites but it is based on a, a real thing that happened to me a year ago, which you know all about, Zeke. I do. Which is, uh, quite... I do. But it's very exciting. <laughs> it is very exciting. So we'll see where that goes. And the other thing as well, which was a complete surprise to me, we're actually in the theater about to watch Elvis when I saw my phone buzz up. And uh, my guest appearance that I recorded several months ago on a podcast that's now available on Spotify called Free Juicy Questions uh, with my good mate Zach uh, went live. Mm-hmm. literally as I'm entering the theater. So I was like, oh crap, I can't promote it. Yeah, I'll wait, I'll wait till tomorrow. Uh, but that's out on Spotify for juicy questions. I'm on episode seven as a guest appearance and we talk about some nice personal topics. Well, that's the idea is, is Zach gets random guests on for each yeah. week and uh, pick a number at a draw completely random and we end up getting asked three 
semi-personal questions that uh, to to whatever extent we feel like we can go into. So I thought that was quite a lot of fun. I do, of course, promote our podcast. Mm-hmm. I talk about the origins of this podcast and, and how we recorded our first episode and how it went on to make... I said it at in the episode more than 150 because I didn't want to be time-specific. Nah, and that's uh, good, good now, cool. now we're nearly at 200. So, <laughs> so it took a while to come up, but it's out there. We talk about things like... I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but... I think one of them is pain, mm-hmm. uh, in the sense of would you eradicate pain from the world if you could? And the other one is, is do you hold grudges? Uh, and also fear, what's your biggest fear? So we get into all of those things. And yes, bees do come up during the fears. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, good to know. Yeah, you're, you're I leaving know. it all bare. Out there. there you go. So now you got to listen for the bee commentary. Mm. What are my thoughts on bees? Um, but yeah, so no, a couple of little things for the career update. I'm really Very excited about. exciting. Well, I guess it's time for us to move into our film of the week, Jake. Mm. But Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Elvis. Our country itself is sick. But it's lost its sense of direction. Even its common decency. You don't so much as wiggle the fingers. A lot of people saying a lot of things. But in the end, you gotta listen to yourself. In that moment, Elvis the man was sacrificed, and Elvis the god was born. I'm gonna show you what the real Elvis is like tonight! You're looking for trouble? You came to the right place. You're looking for trouble? He had no idea what he had done. You ain't nothing but a dog player. I I wish to promote you, Mr. Presley. Tomorrow, all of America will be talking about my war. Who the hell is there? Crying all the time. Elvis Presley. You ain't nothing. You don't do the business, the business will do you. I'm gonna do what I want to do. Sing the music that I want. Don't play a We can't go on together. With suspicions. Without me, there would be no Elvis Presley. Reverend once told me that things are too dangerous to say. The man, the legend, the king of rock and roll. The life story of Elvis Presley as seen through the complicated relationship with his enigmatic manager, Colonel Tom Parker. Mr. Parker. Mr. whatever accent that is. (laughs) Straight off the bat. Hot take. Uh, Yeah, I know. You cannot take the Tom Hanks out of Tom Hanks. No, you can't. There's one point where he laughs exactly like Woody, and I just... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I couldn't unhear it. Really, this film, it shouldn't really be called Elvis. It should be called Colonel Tom Parker and his wiggly white boy. But, um, I mean, that would have been more, more appropriate. <laughs> yeah, look. It's probably a more appropriate title. So this is title. the sixth or seventh feature film from Baz Luhrmann. Yeah, um, which it's going to be interesting to talk about because I haven't really seen any of other Baz Luhrmann's films. I, I saw Australia when I was, like, 12. 
I don't remember a lick of anything Seventh. about it. Um, but otherwise, I'm pretty unfamiliar with his works, other than, I guess, there is a flamboyancy to them. Would you agree with that? Yeah, as someone who's seen um, a vast majority of his catalogue, okay, cool. um, the only film I haven't seen is uh, either La Bohème, which is actually his first film, I believe. Oh, wow. No, sorry, Strictly Borum is still his first film, um, but Bohème was his second, and then obviously... I actually haven't seen Australia. Oh, so, okay. Um, they're the two I haven't seen, but I've seen Milan Rouge, Great Gatsby, uh, Strictly Ballroom. Uh, yeah. Okay. Wow. I'd and Romeo plus Juliet. I wouldn't have actually known that, but there you go. There you go. Very nice. So coming into this was aware with his flamboyancy. Mm. Um, Strictly Ballroom still pertains to me. His first feature film is still his best. Okay. Wow. Um, it's probably the most... Well, obviously, it's an original story, which is a good start. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It, it's one of those things, like, people... Some people are massive fans of Moulin Rouge, but sometimes I, I like I don't like the, the the flamboyancy of... The cabaret flamboyancy and over-the-topness and the right. artif- sound of the artificial... Can- it looks like art... It looks His films look like candy sometimes is what i've yeah heard. the the word i see thrown around is uh, maximalism or which obviously the opposite of minimalism which i've never really i guess that makes sense this film is definitely that <laughs> yeah yeah i've i've heard him as visual candy which mm. i can definitely especially some of his works like gatsby and um moulin rouge per, like really sit in that category quite prominently and yeah i think it's one of those things that what I find interesting that this film chooses to explore, and, and this is going to lead to sort of why I think both of us arrived at a m- seldom moderate grade for mm. this film, but I think one of the biggest antithesis is this is a music biopic, and it chooses every music biopic focuses on an angle in order to explore the life of the artist, but yeah. there's always the driving question at its core, which allows us to basically move along a person's career but still have the story that connects to it so it's not just a collection of archival footage or a documentary right you would hope that's the that's <laughs> the goal and this one obviously elects to focus on this relationship between colonel tom parker and elvis yeah but told from you know obviously from the colonel's the, point of view yeah really. the unreliable narrator obviously yep. um this takes place on parker's deathbed and he's sort of recounting the story of elvis which was five or six years after Elvis had died. I think it was in the 80s. Yeah, I think... I think the... I read The Colonel died in 97, okay, but so I don't know if that's significantly, when the film took place, though. Um, whereas, you know, and for um, Rocket Man, it was the the therapy session really drove the career. Um, right. And obviously, the key kind of driving point was his sort of spiral into substance abuse. Mm. But... Um, that one, you know, what Dexter Fletcher chose to do with that one was he was focusing way more on the music side. It was more about, um, the songs he made and basically we almost watched a musical biopic, not a music biopic, like with that. And it worked. And then sort of honestly, like some people like Bohemian Rhapsody, but let's be real, Bohemian Rhapsody is exactly what I'm talking about. There wasn't really a driving question. It was how the band got together. Here's a fun song. Here's yeah. a fun song. I'm trying Here's to remember how it song. opens. It literally just opens at the Live Aid concert, doesn't it? And then it just yeah. goes back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's sort of a collection. Of, and honestly, those biopics can never exceed past being okay. Because really all you're doing is you're watching 
you're just watching music videos, like yeah. really, essentially. Like, and then you got like the Ray one as well. You got um, um, obviously Walk the Line, which we actually like. Walk the Line a lot. I think Walk the Line's the pinnacle of the musical biopic. Mm. Even think- though structurally it doesn't really do anything unique, but it just it just works. Like it's very entertaining and enjoyable. And but it it doesn't overcomplicate itself. At its core, yeah. it's about Johnny and June getting together. It's a love story. Right. Yeah. That's just on the back the back line of, of, of Cash's career, which is a multiple decade career, you know, how he chose to do live prison performances to add authenticity. Mm, like yep. there, it, but at its core, it's just a love story. And yeah. you're just really, you know, Oh, this is, this is where this song has its inspiration from. And this song has its inspiration yeah. from, and it's, it's simple in its goal. And that's why it's so effective. Yeah. There's like the, the father issues there and the, the, but and the and the death of a brother and but these are yeah. things that were overtly recounted by the artist as inspirations for his music. And it's it's so tricky because like we point to all of these similar films, you know, the music biopic, you know, and there's so many video essays online about you know how they're all the structure they're all so similar and so predictable. And I mean, the famous line is you know he died six minutes after this performance. <laughs> that that's probably like the key line everyone refers to in terms of. Like, we understand mm. what this sort of subgenre of movie is. Yeah. And I think it is hard to get out of that rut, and especially because so many of the artists that we choose to follow in these films have very similar trajectories in life. They just do. There's always, you know, the drug side of it. There's always the rise of fame. There's also sort of a shameful death at the end. Yeah, and it's a very... And obviously this film chooses to take this... Basically how this carnival mm. man... Because big emphasis on carnivals, <laughs> which and the 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 snowball effect or whatever. It really it was yep. just a opportunistic man manager who took advantage and yeah. was leeching off more talented individuals. And obviously, it, you know, it's quite interesting exploring the the idea of of a manager. But not every manager is like that. Some like you know, it's like the depiction of the manager in Almost Famous, mm. who's more a friend of the band. He's just trying to help him, makes yep. mistakes, but is always looking out for the band's best interest. interest. Yeah, um, to- total opposite of what the Colonel's doing. <laughs> yeah, and I know. And the interesting thing is, it's like I went and saw this film with Lou, and she mm. brings up the, and I haven't watched to completion the Amy Winehouse documentary and how, okay, basically her family, was, her father was the one who kind of pushed her. She wanted to try and get rehab and help and stuff like that, and it was people around her who were money hungry who kind right, of pushed yeah. her to continue her spiral in order to perform and stuff like Similar that. Similar abuse stuff between, I think, Britney Spears and her dad, yes. which has only settled pretty recently. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, this is definitely the uh, like. This is what this film's trying to talk about. Is mm. is, is Colonel has like gambling issues and basically keeps keeps him in the country and. Obviously, there are essence truth to that. He never did do a world tour and, and um, yeah, well, never left the country. A lot of, and I think we're both going to laugh at this, a lot of my Elvis knowledge outside of the music itself literally comes from random tidbits Bill Burr has made <laughs> on stage and in his podcast. Yeah. And you're right, the tidbit of like him joking about the colonel being like, hey, Elvis, you, you don't want to go on tour. You want to stay here and make movies with me. So it's like that. literally that joke drove so much of the context that I had going into this movie to understand the the controversy there. And I think this film does sort of require a, a passing knowledge of Elvis because it does run very fast. Yeah, well, I think it honestly, there's so much to cover with his career mm. 
And it's just, it, it, in that way, it's like, oh, no wonder it's two hours 40, because there really is a lot to unpack. There's not yeah. just, there's his relationship with his family and like, yeah, like how his mother died very soon after he started producing successful music, how he went over to Germany and met mm. Priscilla, his whole relationship with Priscilla and how yeah. that that came about. And then... On top of that, his passive sort of background father, who apparently in real life like remarried two years after his mum died. And I did like, read that too, yeah. And then the film doesn't really go into that. Doesn't even take well basically gives him nothing really. He's just yeah. this weak background character that's along for the ride and because they're so fixated on the the Hanks um performance. Right. Um, the, the, and I guess that, that comes back to, well, you get pardoned because it's the unreliable narrator. He's only telling the story from his perspective. So no yeah. wonder people <laughs> like his father in the background. I think pardon's a really good word for it because I had many questions in the film that kind of can be explained by just, oh, well, it's the Colonel's POV. Yeah. He's telling the story. And, the, and there's multiple times where, you know, he's like trying to get Elvis's attention before they've met. And he keeps like, oh, darn, he just missed him. Or he's outside. I have to sort of lurk in the shadows and follow him. And it's like a lot of that kind of does make sense because it's the Colonel telling his version of the story of, I fought hard to, quote unquote, discover Elvis. And yeah. I'm the reason he's famous. I, I think pardon is the correct word there. <laughs> yeah. That, and I think it, it goes to a certain point because unfortunately, well, there are points where it, it I guess it's like, when the colonel wasn't around and we had just Elvis scenes, particularly these Elvis scenes with like BB King in the earlier parts yes. of the film where you're just sort of like, where he objectively, the colonel wouldn't be there. It's very confusing. And I guess it's just sort of like those scenes are very weird. Cause they're, yeah, they're, they're displaced from this unreliable narrator sort yeah. of point of view. And I think it's true. Or even the final, the, the final scenes with Priscilla and Elvis in the car and stuff like that. Right. And, um, I think there was a lot to unpack. And I, I think, I actually said walking away, I was like, this would have benefited from, like, a miniseries. I, I really do think. Sure, There's enough yeah. to explore in 20 years of life. I mean, this is a man that basically... And they touch on a little bit, and I have to applaud Lerman for some of the... the addressing the the african-american influences to elvis but this stuff right. was this stuff was noted at the time too i mean yeah the, well, the that... carter address pretty much mm. at the end of the film summates that everyone knew he took a lot of this stuff from african-american culture and he didn't yeah. hide that but he was the bridge to accepting this type of music yeah because we we talked about this in the weeks leading into us doing this show of like oh i wonder how much the movie's going to touch on that and you're right it does portray it in a way that there is a self-awareness between, you know, Elvis and these communities and the people sort of reviewing the music. And, and it's not even inferring he's stealing it. He's celebrating it. I think that that's the difference. Yeah. Like, there's never a scene with B.B. King or, um, not sure, the something Jackson. There's Little Richard in there as well. I yeah. think he's the one that actually has the line of like, oh, you know, this song would be so popular if you sang it, saying that to Elvis. Yeah. Which have that it, line And there, to yeah. be honest, it's like they address the whole as soon as he the rejection and what motivated him to get sent to the military mm. and get conscripted in the military was because they the world wasn't ready to attack the the he civil needs rights to be an all american boy yeah it's that <laughs> civil rights movement side and it's it's quite interesting cuz yeah that that's definitely something to touch on yeah. um and it does explore it i don't understand one of the most baffling decisions that we talk about with this this maximalism or or just mm. these weird sort of directorial choices is the using of contemporary music. Oh, I hated that. It's you know hated you're, it. 
you're showing us all of these iconic African-American artists from that time. Why am I not hearing their music? Yeah. Why does B.B. King not sing at all in this film? It, oh, my God. Like, that that drove me insane. I was like, am I actually going mad right now? Like, yeah. they're playing contemporary, like, Doja Cat music. In like, rap fi- and... What? In worse, God's it's worse name than the synth, thinking. Synths and Gliffly. <laughs> worse than the synths and Gliffly. What is it with well, Australian it, it literally, directors? It literally is. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Australia, what I put, such out-of-touch out of music. But, like, it's literally a music biopic about musicians from that span it from the from the 30s through to the 70s. Like, that, that is a big chunk of... Why yeah. on earth can't you just stick with that? Because you're right, it is a celebration of like the blues music and the gospel rhythm and blues that inspired and, rock like, and roll. Yeah. Why can't the entire soundtrack just be that? Yeah. That it's... completely blew my mind, and I'm not gonna lie. So I don't know if you saw my initial score when I got home last night. I did. I gave the film three stars, and within five minutes, bumped it back to two and a half because I specifically remembered that instant of the contemporary music, and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" And I and I don't know where that comes from. Where's Where's that in the Colonel's uh, <laughs> storytelling? <laughs> That's the colonel's he's idea. Got, he's, he's, before he dies, he actually... I was sees, listening to Doja Cat oh, on, my, 20, on my deathbed. 2020 rap music. <laughs> and it was funny because it really was like... Good. Like like Lou obviously pointed out, we both weren't very happy with that because we were like, we don't really understand it. And I was like, well, the only justification I give is, oh, well, this is where the music started to where it evolved. But it, it very clearly isn't that smart. No, and the use I, of the I was also gonna. Music. Then I'm reminded of things like uh, why see Moulin Rouge gets away with it because it's like a contemporary musical. Yes. So when they're playing like contemporary music in their in their back, but it's a musical, so it's yeah. allowed to do that because it's just reinterpreting them. Whereas, um, doesn't work. He, he does the same thing in Great Gatsby. He plays like contemporary music in Great Gatsby, and I'm like, it's just. That it's the bizarre. only, the it's only, so the, and once again, the only bailout I give in Great Gatsby is like, okay, well, it's a book, so it's a novella. Someone's telling us a storybook. They can really kind of insert whatever music they want, even though if it's yeah. not. But that's period, getting, that's really pushing the edge of. I, I think but, having not seen those other examples you gave, I think Elvis probably would be the most like it's a musical ridic- biopic. Makes exactly, no sense. Exactly, no sense at all. And some of the editing is just overly disorientating and quirky for no real reason other than just being... Yeah, look, I think we can get into a whole thing about the way it's edited and sort of, like you said, the candy look of the whole film. And I mean, there's some niceties in there. I like, you know, when there's like a flying prop of like a contractor piece of paper like flies into the screen. It's clearly like a CG insert that then actually seamlessly transitions into a real prop that the actor's holding before it flies out of frame. And I think little things like that are neat, but I think the part that really becomes disorientating for me, and again, I think the film really does skip over a lot of the earlier stuff of Elvis. I mean, we never actually see the scene where Elvis and the Colonel actually meet. That scene doesn't exist. There's a scene when sort of he makes a proposition that Mm. he's going to drop, I think it's Hank Snow, in order to represent Elvis full-time. But... For for a film that's specifically about the relationship of these two people, to not have the scene where they actually meet, and again, it feels like it's sort of in service of just skipping a lot of the first half of his career. Now, I'm not a gigantic like Elvis connoisseur, so to speak. I'm learning a lot about mm. him and and the relationship here, and and even just the gospel sort of inspiration and music in general. Watching this film, but I could tell it just felt like there were scenes being skipped. It just felt like there were a lot of things um, missing, frankly, and. 
you know, if we're going to point to a lot of these other music biopics, with like you said, that movie's already two hours and 40 minutes long. It's not the briefest, quickest two hours, 40 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say that it was like, oh, this film's way too long. I didn't think the pacing was... Well, the pacing's a whole other story. I didn't think the film was overly long. But if it's going to be this long, at least pick a time period and focus on it. Yeah. Don't, don't pretend like, oh, we're going to see the rise and birth of Elvis Presley, but then skip, pretty much skip all the way until when he goes to Germany. <laughs> or when he, yeah, when he goes to um that that whole shebang, I suppose. Yeah, I know. I think that there's just, there's just, like I said, it's that problem where it's just, there's so much to explore that this would almost benefit from like a six episode, mm. six one hour episode miniseries. And yeah. you definitely could get the content there. And, um, I, I think it was, it was quite disjointing, um, at times. And I think the first part flowed well enough. It was really when we started to jump into like, when he really started to build up steam just before he goes to Germany and, pretty much after that whole second act where he's basically just making movies and then mm. it turns into... It becomes this sort of, like... N- they basically skip 10 years because they're like, well, pretty much nothing happened, but he made movies for 10 years and he's rich. <laughs> like, And he sort of pushed into obscurity and then obviously they touch on the making the um, rebellious sort of song commenting on the Vietnam War and the sort oh, of yeah. time of change and... When he's meant to be Basically, doing the Christmas show and that that whole thing, and it sort of gets its little sugar hit there, and it picks up a little bit, and mm. then then we jump to the Vegas stuff, and it starts to to downward spiral again. And I I can't I I have to say one of the biggest parts is I definitely think Austin Taylor did a very good job. I think his performance was pretty solid. Yeah, as again as someone not a connoisseur of Elvis Presley, what I saw I was very impressed with his look and his voice. And, I think and his, his character is just very averagely written they put so much emphasis on the performance sides that when it comes back to the story and exploring who elvis was as a person he Mm. just basically was just a passenger to everyone (laughs) else around him like which that can be the point of your film and in a lot of ways it kind of is that he didn't have a lot of agency in his own career and a lot of it was the colonel you know working against him family or presley clan that was spending money and they ended up being this dizzying amount of ensemble cast members that really had no like, we I couldn't remember any of their names. Like that, okay. was, the, that was the thing. <laughs> After his mum died, it's like the most ironclad character, right? That represented sort of the Presley family kind of takes a backseat. And then to be honest, Priscilla, the whole relationship with Priscilla is washed over. Yeah, it's very much. She it reminded becomes, me of um. I can't remember if this was the director's cut. Or I think it was just the regular cut of um, of Straight Outta Compton, where I think it was the relationship. I can't remember which character it was, but there was a relationship and it was just so, so passive, so nothing, that there was almost no point to even have it in the film. Mm. I wouldn't go to that extent. There's no point having you know Priscilla in this film. I think she obviously is a very important part because I'm guessing she's the only person that Elvis ever, ever married. Yeah. But, well, based on what the film's telling me. So it's like she's obviously a very important part of his career and his life. But you're right, they kind of do just wash over that whole relationship. Yeah, and it, and it always falls back to, oh, well, the colonel's narrating, so why would he address their relationship? He basically yeah. goes, oh, the go. one thing I couldn't attend, <laughs> uh, the one thing I couldn't count on was him falling in love. Yeah. Then we see how Specif- they... Specific, what does he say? He's like, oh, the, the worst thing that could have happened 
Yeah. Was there falling in love or something, something like that. <laughs> so, I mean, I, but I like Taylor's voice. Uh, I like what they did with Taylor. I think he got, like, the moves and the mystique right. I like the sort of marriage of Elva's voice with, with Taylor's voice, which I'm pretty sure is what they've done with the, the sound. It's not authentically Austin Taylor's singing oh, okay. voice. Like, Austin uh, Butler. Bo- Austin Butler, yep. sorry. No. Um, his... We were, we were debating whether that was, and I think Elvis has such an iconic voice, it would almost be too difficult to directly... It would have to be a mix of him singing, right? And, yeah. And, and well, it, Butler's it, performance. It's interesting going into this, because I've talked to some people who will not watch this film, and simply because of their fear of, like, oh, it's just going to be an Elvis impersonator. And I, and I sympathize with that, because, like, Elvis, more than any other of the music icons we've talked about, I mean, you've got Johnny Cash and... And all of that, but it's like I think Elvis especially has so many impersonators that this is the most risky one to do in a way. This yeah. performance, and it's what Joaquin did with with Johnny Cash, and that was Mendez's choice to basically be like, "No, Joaquin, we're going to just stick with his voice and not mm-hmm. make it." And he does sound a little different. He sounds a little softer than like the genuine Johnny Cash, but it's enough to buy into it. You kind of almost do have to play into the fact that it's not exactly the same. Yeah, and yeah. I, I would say the exact same thing with Taron Edgington's Rocket, like with mm. um Elton John, and yeah. it's the same sort of thing. But it's what we're talking about is, is simply it's a reprisal of that character, and and. You know, in in that instance with with Rocket Man, Elton John was the one who was like, "I want him to play me," and that that's how that so it ended up yeah. becoming um, that level of authenticity there. So, um, yeah, in this in this particular instance, I think he did quite well. I I think his performance was the most engaging, and I thought it was such a shame that he really doesn't get any sort of emotional gravitas or weight until the final 20 30 minutes of the, of the film right yeah he doesn't make me want to buy into his story because he's so passive in every decision he makes and he really is a child and yeah you could you could say oh well he you know he was a child when his mum died like he was you know barely 18 but it's like this father that he's protecting so dearly has is a non-event in this story and mm. It's tough to buy into it. Um, His father does have a weird role because there are multiple times where the father does have sort of stake in the business side of it. Because I think initially he's sort of given that title when the colonel was getting into the same mm. contracts of like, oh, well, you, you see, you do have agency in your son's career and, you know, you get this legitimacy because he obviously got arrested before and that goes in the whole segregation housing situation mm. and how Elvis even, you know, became a part of this sort of South and gospel um yeah, music scene mm. as as a child, but the the further it gets along, it's like he really is just like a minor version of the Colonel's character in terms of you know is he working in the business interest or for his son's interest? And I think you're right. It's like it, it doesn't really distinguish itself from the Colonel's role enough mm. that he kind of does sink into the background. I I I kind of agree with you on that one. Yeah, and it, it really does become the Colonel's well, the Colonel story very early on doesn't it, it becomes well this- yeah and look i think that is definitely a clever way to go about it and like you said with his whole pov thing um first of all before i forget it i want to say it, that's kind of another thing i wondered is like oh because there's a huge part of this film is sort of the sex appeal of elvis mm-hmm. and how a lot of it is sort of creating this lust amongst women and then sort of you know the right-sided yeah. white men being like, "We can't have this." You know, we we have family values here, and that that's a huge part of the film. 
And I was surprised that it didn't go in any way, shape, or form of, oh, are we just questioning Elvis's actual musical talent versus just, is he an icon because he has the sex appeal to women? But again, like you said, you can sort of fall that back on, the colonel doesn't care. Yeah. He just wants a profitable puppet, essentially. But it reminded me of Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, because that was also a film I had a huge problem with in terms of I didn't think the point of view was clear enough. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was the Ted Bundy point of view or, or the, the... Is it the wife? Do they get married? I mean, they get married. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, or her point of view on the film. And I remember thinking that was a huge problem with that film is it didn't know which POV to focus on because she would have been the smart one, but then we see Ted Bundy commit murders in scenes where she would objectively not be involved in. So for me, that kind of ruined the film. But with this Colonel POV stuff, every time they sort of deviated from it, like you said, where we get scenes of Elvis by himself or talking to Little Richard and and BB King and all of that, it didn't ruin it for me. Mm. But you're right. I wish it did commit to it just a little bit more. The Colonel POV. Yeah, and no, I think we, for the most part, other than a couple of, of songs, the, the musical biopic element, it really felt on, uh, f- fell on deaf ears. So another element that's crucial to a sort of a music biopic success is using the music to complement the story you're trying to tell or, mm. or even just to show from a mixture of that meets, oh, what inspired this song? So, you know, you right. take, you take, uh, little visual cues that are in walk the line where he sees like uh, an african-american boy shining shoes and that's Mm. where get rhythm comes from and we know i walk the line is that tenuous line that him and june are having while they're flirting with having a multiple mutual marital affairs and Mm -hmm. and then you brace it over something like rocket man where they're trying to explore the the singer song uh the singer songwriter relationship that those two have yeah and them just being um, sort of in, like, a dormitory situation with their family and having, like, you know, like, that's the, you know, this song for you. Um, whereas in this film, they they basically give us one song where they show that, and that's the first song we hear Elvis singing. We see how it's, you know, the, the, the gospel roots and the, the shanty town right, sex appeal. Right, and sort of, of intercutting with his rhythm first television blues. performance, right. Yeah, and we see that, and then we see that, that television performance where he takes a political stance, where we're, oh, in yeah. the yeah. context of the If story, I Can Dream. If I Can Dream, which is, yep. which is more just a, in a mutual rebellion with um, Colonel Park, you know, Parker, mm. and we kind of see it in the final song, where it's archival footage meets dramatic performance in that right. in yeah. that marriage of, of deep fake and um, <laughs> archival footage. To be honest, it's it's, it's fantastic mm. in that last scene because we're seeing the the sort of the fallout of that final um, interaction he has with Priscilla. Sure, um, but we don't see it a lot, and often songs that he sung are just slotted in just so it's oh you remember oh he's in Las Vegas now here's a Las Vegas song so. <laughs> It just doesn't I, have this. It has. It lacks imagination sometimes, and yeah, often it's going for stylism over, uh, not even just its genre conventions. Just. I think I think stylism is <laughs> definitely taking priority in a lot of cases for this film. But with that, I can dream. Um, if I can dream performance, I think a lot of that goes back to just the constant. And I, I kind of do laugh a little bit. Not laugh, but the amount of times we have scenes where characters are watching a historical figure on TV get shot. And it just seemed like, oh, they just keep wanting to sort of 
pin down these dates for the audience. Um, but I feel like you can also say that without those scenes, his political outcry for If I Can Dream doesn't make as much sense. So I think for that song in particular, you have multiple scenes of him seeing political figures get shot and him sort of being frustrated that he can't talk about it or comment mm. it, although the colonel's sort of trying to steer him away from that. But to your point, that's one song. And frankly, I thought there were so many like half performances, but the film was just so like excited to cut to the next scene mm-hmm. that we actually get very few scenes where it's just him performing a full song. And I thought that was a little disappointing. It is. Yeah. It is. It, and it, like I said, once again, that's another thing that just slowly detracts away from that Austin Bust Butler performance that mm. we don't we don't get to see that because we're too busy being like, oh, and now he's doing movies. And, <laughs> oh, now uh, now he's over in this piece. He's doing a Christmas like, special. And now he's on, he's on the destroyed Hollywood uh, Hollywood sign. It's also just like, <laughs> like I said, it's that ensemble cast, which is overwhelmingly large, that you start to go, there are people just talking in a scene or like... Like, the ones that are, like, rebelling against the colonel's word, and they're mm. basically telling him to just piss off while they're trying to make these actual practical songs yep. and kind of revitalize Elvis's career. And then they fade into the ether after their 20-minute <laughs> segment. Yeah. And then it's back to the, the the cast. You know, it's things like, oh, this Dr. Nick guy, who we don't even hear talk, Hi, I don't Dr. think. Hi, Dr. Nick. He doesn't talk at all. He's really just the character to be like, oh, just drug him up and keep him going. And His mouth is his syringe. Yeah. <laughs> And it really, it really shows that there's just maybe there's just too much cast, or they're focusing on trying to do too much, or they're so obsessed with having like Hanks's performance, which I don't care for. I think, like I said, you can't, you just can't get away from the Tom Hanks voice. I don't know what accent he was trying to do. <laughs> like honestly, was he Irish? Or was he? I know that we like find out that he was from. Uh, Holland was it like? Or I think so. Is it because I remember hearing Tom I think Holland and thinking about Spider Man for I five think it's minutes. Implied that he's a Jewish man that escaped the war and, and oh, okay. sort of kind of came over, but you know, or he's this guy with no identity because he's sort of just breezing by and yeah. he's avoiding conscription and army service and basically just a human leech of a person. But and he really does leech away at this film because he gets like. I just don't care for his performance. And he's so creepy and, like, mm. you just sort of don't buy into his charisma. The, more importantly, you don't buy into... If you, we're going to do a story based from his perspective, yeah, he's got to be charismatic enough for us to believe that he's not this sleazy car salesman of a person. So when he's sitting down mm. with the Presleys, yeah. being like, oh, I, you, the dad can be the manager and stuff. And... Basically, you get your pink convertible. Yeah, yeah. It's he's so <laughs> slimy, and mm. I like just doesn't ever come off earnest at all. That you sort of yeah. I I wonder because I mean, Tark, because we don't know what he was like in person. Yeah, how sleazy he was. I feel like it's probably exaggerated to an extent for the purpose of the film. Being like, oh, Tom Hanks is really creepy in this movie, but how much of it really is just these promises of. Elvis is desperate to to you know support his family, making career out of this. That he's gonna say yes to the first, you know, manager agent whoever whomever comes to him with yeah. something, no matter how creepy and sleazy he looks. Especially because initially he does get rich very quickly, or according to this film, it sort of mm. just cuts right to that. So I I get that. I think from a stylistic point of view, I don't mind that he's kind of overdoing it in a lot of ways. Um. 
but also I don't I don't think he's not going to be up for an Oscar nom for this. It's just too weird and too bizarre of a performance. Yeah. And I don't know if that helps or or, or yeah. disaids the film. I suppose. And I, I know what the the film's trying to say. It's trying to be like, well, he really never needed him at all, and mm. like, you know, the the every time that there's a revelation or a, or a or a, or an evolution in Elvis's identity and career, it's solely through Elvis. It's through him producing the greatest show in Vegas. It's yeah. through um, you know, his his ability to move and shake because of his relationship with his band. It's basically every time he steps out of line, he rejuvenates and revitalizes his career. Yeah. Um, it's always and, the Colonel sort of holding him back in so many different ways. Yeah. I mean, it's implied the Colonel and obviously it's also implied everyone around him has such capitalistic intents and very mm. few of them actually have earnest, careful well-being intentions. Priscilla yeah. is the replacement for his mother. Right. But, we don't get to really explore. Priscilla has no power or agent, like in the film. She basically just watches on as as he gets corrupted yeah. and sucked in every single time. She she definitely is out for his best interests, and you have those moments where she does. She you know she's like, oh, when you go to see him, make sure he doesn't you know wrangle you back in. Like she does have his best, and the only reason they even break up is because of his addiction that eventually comes. Mm. But you're right. She's very powerless in this film. And, and that, that it makes sense for that to be her role in the film. Yeah. I just don't think we buy into the romance that much. It was almost like, Oh yeah. He, like, and like I said, it comes, it was very quick. Yeah. It was and, like, Oh, he found a girl. Here's a scene of her being kind of funny and, and, and sort of charming and all the together now. And all right, now he just has a wife and the movie yeah. proceeds. It's very quick. And we can always, like I said, we can always flip back to, oh, well, it's because he's narrating it, so he doesn't give a crap about what yeah. Priscilla did. But it's, it's one of those excuse. things where it's like there is no... Yeah, it is. A, it's a very good excuse <laughs> is what the... But it's, it's a, you know, you ask anyone that was a really invested in Elvis and my nan growing up, just obsessed with him, mm. and they all say the same thing. It's, oh, everything went downhill after him and Priscilla broke up. So it's like that relationship was like public royalty like right. it was a very iconic aspect of elvis's career so to see it get pushed to the side because they want to focus on this toxic relationship which is established very early on it's a toxic relationship and then we yeah. keep the movie keeps going for another 90 minutes that like we're watching this spiral but it's like it's like an episodic saga of abuse and it, it just never feels like Elvis is ever going to get out of it right like realistically well we as an audience know that he doesn't because at the end of the day, we're in the back of our heads, we're like, "Well, we know he dies on a toilet," and the film doesn't really. I was, I was wondering if the film ever. It doesn't really mention that. It yeah. just says he died in his home. But I think we, as an audience, we know that there is no, there's no happy ending here. Yeah, he's just abused and used until he's dead. And to your point, with that in mind, what is the point of this story, other than just oh, it's a shame that that people are out there to get you. Like, I don't know. It's very true. It's, I think the film would have benefited from, uh, like you said, there is really no happy ending to this film. So this well, film even doesn't the Colonel even... doesn't like have a miraculous epiphany at the end of the film. What I did was wrong. There's no scene where that happens. No, he, he dies and that's it. And yeah, yeah like <laughs> then it goes to an end scroll of how it, this got settled out of court. And then the Presleys finally got Graceland back. And which did you notice there's a grammatical error in that spelling? Or that is it? There is. Yeah. At the end. And I, it's funny because when I went to check this on Wikipedia, which it repeated it word for word, 
it was fixed in the Wikipedia article. And the, the sentence that I have, if you give me a second, was, quote, Parker's abuse of Elvis was the subject of litigation by the Presley estate after Elvis's death, in which they spell it E-L-V-I-S apostrophe another S. Why is the second S there? There you go. So, bad movie. Bad. <laughs> and, but it's anyway, one of those... And, anyway. No, and, and the endings, the last 15 minutes, it like bursts through like eight or nine years. It's like... <laughs> And he put on weight, and he got fat, and he died. And it's, <laughs> and then you see that beautiful last scene where he's like the the th- oh I watched his performance three weeks before he died, and it's this beautiful almost like cry for help scene. Yeah. And it was that like I said, it's a perfect marriage of like deep fake and archival footage, and how they slowly transition. He looks it over. great as he's like he's not like a David Bowie where he's looked dramatically changed. He just kind of gets a little older and a little fatter. But like I love the small progression and details. Yeah, he got a lot the, fatter. And the tan and yeah. everything that they the makeup they did on um on Butler as well and all that. Yeah, I just thought that was great. And it was a really good trend. It was a really strong way to finish. And you're just like, man, I wish I got more of that movie. Mm. You know, one of the top letterbox comments is, congratulations, Baz Luhrmann, you made the longest ever trailer for a movie. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, it kind of is. It um, literally, it, it's just, it's a gigantic montage. Yeah. And it's like, it feels like there's no, it feels like it's just teasing things. Like, yeah, I, I want to go and watch the real I don't walk away from this film thinking we've celebrated Elvis's music. If anything, we've walked away from this film. And yeah, nor have we walked away from the film and gone... God, what a shame. What if he had just lived another 20, 30 years? Like, no. you don't even... You don't even... You walk over from this film not really feel like, like, recognising the potential for that person to live on. Right. Like you do with some um, artists' lives that are cut short, and you're like, oh, what, like, like, what if we got another 10, 15 years out of them? Like, what could they have made? Yeah. Um, And then you don't get that essence, and then on top of that, you don't get... um you don't feel like we've really celebrated Elvis's life with the film. You walk away kind of feeling like, oh, you feel like like crap. You feel like crap. It's like this person was just, we just watched two decades of abuse, an abusive relationship of two decades. And it's, it's odd because yeah, it, in that two decades, it's like, oh, well, at least we got all these really good songs out of it. And it's like, yeah, but were they worth it? Like we don't feel like the poignantness. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, we go back to the opening narration that Tom Hanks does, where he says, "Like people accused me of killing Elvis, but I actually made Elvis." Like that's his justification for the whole story. And you're right; I didn't get the sense watching it of like whether he would be successful without the Colonel. Probably, but I don't think the film really does a good enough job of making that its message. Yeah, well, that's what I said because because I don't think Butler's given the opportunity. Or in his character. Oh, his, it's not his, his fault, no. Of Elvis. Like, that character is not given enough time to be like, he can stand on his own two feet. And, like, it swings both ways. I, I don't think the colonel's convincing enough for him to not leave him. Like, right. there's not enough stakes there. Like, the first time he, he has a heart attack and he somehow feels sorry for this overweight man who smokes like a chimney is having <laughs> health problems and is like, oh... No, I won't leave you, despite the fact you're making my life more terrible, despite the fact you're... like. And then he's like, you're like a father to me. And it's like, well, your father's right there. Like, <laughs> You need a mother. It's very... It's a weird... Well, I mean, that, that that's it, because that's the objective side of it, that we can see watching this film. But it's like, 
the I, I guess that just means the film didn't do a good enough job of making you feel empathy for Elvis and understanding that Elvis probably is in this situation where he does respect and love the colonel and can't see that level of deception until pretty much at the end. The scene when he's an Elvis and he pretty much admits to everyone, like, oh, I just found out the colonel is not who he says he is. And he turns around and he just screams, like, you're fired. Like, his performance is excellent in mm. that scene. You feel it, it's fiery, but it's like, this is the point when he figures it out. Yeah. And it's upsetting, but I don't, I don't think the film does a good enough yeah, job I, of... I, I, I yeah, think the film needs to explore, and they don't do it quite enough, they, they don't explore the fact that um, all these people around him are kind of spending the money frivolously, and he's living this frivolously bougie lifestyle and not realising that like he's not as well off as he thought he was. And well, Even when he's $8 million in debt, and he's like, where'd the money go? And his dad replies, like, oh, well, you bought like those cars, and you bought this and that. It's like... Did we really see that, though? Yeah. We saw surrounding characters burn through money, the Colonel Gambling. We didn't really see Elvis buying excessive amounts of cars. As far as I'm (laughs) concerned, that's just a couple of pieces of paper that said that that guy's owes him money. Is there any proof in that? (laughs) It's such a quick way to be like... I should do that, Zeke. One thing I really don't like about that scene is we don't really see how... Maybe this is it. We don't actually see how the colonel orchestrates this impenetrable fortress like to keep him there no matter what or right. at least exploit him as the leech he is and his lawyer counterpart who's basically just a yes person who really has once again another ensemble cast that sort of blends into the background is like oh why why are you okay with it well i'm not at liberty to say what mr uh, mr parker's mm. like stuff and you're like well, what is this character really doing here like <laughs> And I think it's more that thing where it's like he then goes, oh, from 1955, I was I was keeping records of all this stuff. But we don't see that. He sort of just whips out this notepad that says, oh, this guy owes me money from 1955 and we're now in 1971. And I did laugh when when he walks in and the dad's upset and he's like, oh, what's wrong? He's like, over there. And I expected it to cut to like this gigantic like stack of papers. It was like, it was like two pages. Yeah. <laughs> and I he's recounting like $1 like subjects yeah. but then the eight million dollars fits on a two-page sheet my thing is, is in 1970 <laughs> how could you prove that like who's keeping and, and maybe that's it maybe i wanted to see a little bit more of okay well if this guy's so smart what he's gonna whip out a, a 15 year old pad and say well this guy owed me 55 <laughs> cents for petrol it just seems it felt so like ah, oh, how do we how do we Right in that this that Elvis owes him oh eight million God. dollars in like legal fees, despite the fact that you assumed that the fifty fifty partnership meant that all of that money was already getting paid to him. Yeah, I, I guess he's got to assume there's like a loophole in the contract. That there's he definitely signed. some forms of like stuff that could have been interesting to explore because it would have like definitely legitimized him as an antagonist whereas mm. he just goes all right well it's, i want to whip out a pad and go well you owe me five million dollars for all these things <laughs> it seems that's it, the rest it, of the movie it, yeah. yeah it's interesting sort of because when you're talking about someone that's like worming their way in and we sort of talked a little bit about with like red rocket and how oh, yeah. the main character in that is just this horrible person yet we can't help but be along for the ride and right engage. there's a sense of empathy there yeah, and I buy into it, and it's like that guy's a, that guy's a piece of work, and that isn't he? He's just horrible, and 
<laughs> yeah, and this, it's like, not one point in time, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm buying into... I, if I was Elvis, I'd be buying into this guy's legitimacy. That's the difference. Whereas, right. you know, like, the relationship with Strawberry in, in Red Rocket, mm. um, it's like you can understand... And that's a similar age capitalism situation Yeah, probably. There. If not, maybe slightly wider. I, don't quote me on that, but... So yeah, it's a good the, comparison. The uh, manipulation there is a little less sexual, but it's, it's there. But does it really matter if it's no, capitalistic no, no. or sexual? It's uh, at the end of the day, there was a capitalistic notion in Red Rocket too. Yeah. Like he wanted to get financial success back and relevancy yeah. back, and was willing to use a younger, more talented, potent person with potential. Yeah, to sort of step out of that, and that's inherently a more P- this is a more PG ish version, I guess, or oh, a less ill intended. Way more PG, yeah, but. It, yeah, I just don't think you, you're buying into it as much, maybe. and um, it's... Yeah. I guess I just I watched this with a more passive lens where I wasn't really bothered by how much I was buying into it. At the end of the day, it's like, well, you know, based on true events and this is how it goes and this is how Hollywood sort of accounting works and, and betrayal and all of that. Like, I wasn't too distracted by... Because, again, it's such a flashy film mm. where it's all about... You know all the all the, all of the candy flying in your face. Uh, it's like yeah. I don't mind that they didn't spend, even though they had <laughs> plenty of runtime in this film to do it, but they didn't go into the intricacies of what was written in the contract and why he owes him eight million back or how that was presented to him. Just the fact that it was, and he knew he mm. couldn't get out of the relationship. I I can forgive the film for that, but again, when I think back into it, there's just a lot of when when people ask me like, oh, what do you think of Elvis? I just say that it was a very bizarre film. Yeah. Um, is probably the best way to put it. And even though I enjoyed my time with it, there were just so many weird choices. I will say there were a few good choices I like, sort of mm. visual um, callbacks, direction, that thing. I sort of like the idea of the Elvis sign in Vegas that's sort of slowly withering away and disappearing as his career furthers mm. uh, towards his untimely death. Um, so I thought that was even though the editing is so rapid, you can't even really tell that that's what's happening there. Um, the fact that they have like frame within frame aesthetics, like Ang Lee's Hulk yep. that always keeps coming in, but I yeah, like the it. weird comic book sort of. Yeah. Well, that, that's Obviously it. From the inspiration when from he was younger, Captain Marvel jr. Was the comic book. Mm. Um, so I sort of made that connection there. So I was like, I want to give those little touches shadow. Cause I think those are good ideas, mm-hmm. but again, I mean, they get lost in a film. That's just so, candy rushed fast paced way too fast paced and uh, i think ultimately the message is so skewed and strange i don't quite get what the point was i guess to bounce off tom hanks's narration with the ending where he says i didn't kill elvis it was his love for the audience that killed him first off that's a dumb line (laughs) but also that doesn't tell me anything other than the colonel has still got this twisted mindset about himself That's all it tells me. Yeah, and he has no regrets for what happens to Elvis. No, no. Which, hey, if that abides by the real-life personality he had, then sure. But the film should have tried a little harder to find a deeper meaning beneath that Mm. and dig to that point. I just... Yeah, I think... It's a depressing ending, especially that whole engagement with Priscilla where he's like, mm. oh, no one's going to love me after it. Like, no one's going to remember me. Right, And you're just like, wow, this film is just depressing here at the end it's just like <laughs> and it's like yeah his legacy did like live on and i guess that's sort of the contradiction of, of, of how sad it is that he died thinking that he was 
going to be forgotten when he clearly isn't mm. you know not just by evidence of this film existing but just the fact that we're so familiar with his music yeah we weren't even born until decades after he died but again what is the point of that exactly other than just to feel bummed out by the end of the movie i don't mind that it has like a a, a downer ending it just it doesn't feel like the ending says anything mm. in particular so i don't know that I that's kind of where I have to leave it with this film. I think ultimately I'm very torn by if I would would I recommend this film? I really don't know. I really don't know. I it's just one you kind of have to see mm. it for yourself. You re, I I can't make any judgments for anyone whether they're gonna like this or not. Yeah, I think it's gonna be a divisive film. Yeah, yeah. I'm already getting that sense. I gotta say though, before we get into our highlight scenes, I was shocked by this. Not to do with the movie per se. Mm-hmm. So I went to Whitford's events, walk into the cinema. It's I got the ticket here. It's VMAX 2 is what I went into. VMAX 2. And I immediately noticed, first off, it's huge, huge cinema. I'm like, there's a lot of speakers in here. So me and Kirstie started counting the speakers. We had to wait until the movie ended and the lights were down so like we weren't getting lights like next to the speakers mm-hmm. blinding us. There were 36 speakers in that cinema. Lordy. It was a 7.1 surround Atmos cinema. I was like, I didn't realize we had any in WA. <laughs> so that was pretty darn cool. This is my first Atmos film that I saw what in a, a cinema. What a shame there wasn't enough music to really <laughs> No, the only time I really noticed it was like clapping and applause at the end of certain performances. When Elvis finished song, people were clapping. I could sort of hear it in the speakers behind me. But otherwise, it didn't sound like they overly utilized the Atmos surround sound. But it is what it is. It Jake, is what, what is. was your highlight scene? I will say... We mentioned it a little bit, going back to his first television performance. So, obviously, Tom Hanks is sort of watching him from afar, very creepily, behind the curtain, behind the shadows. Mm. Seeing this first performance, as Elvis himself realizes the importance of the wiggling and, and sort of getting the attraction of the crowd. And mm. I White gen- man wiggle. Yeah, white man wiggle. you got to love it. But what, in particular, particularly a shot that I actually really liked, I, I can see some people sort of laughing at it because it is a little silly, but particularly as as... Tom Hanks is narrating over like these women that are feeling feelings they feel like they shouldn't be feeling mm-hmm. in public. I feel like I just said feel like four times in one sentence. <laughs> but they have that featured extra where they sort of this slow motion close up shot of her like having that sort of lust, that euphoric mm. feeling before immediately that regret sort of sinks in her face. And I I just I thought that was a wonderful little performance from this person who's in one shot of the film. And I just thought that was a really good way to to, to actually... I, I like that scene quite a lot. Yeah. What about you, Zeke? I have to go with the final scene, the, the performance mm. of Unchained Melody Fair and enough. sort of the marriage of archival for footage with um, Austin Butler's um, sort of later life performance. Mm. It was a really yeah. good, powerful sort of statement. It really complemented the, the... Though depressing, the depressing final engagement with Priscilla and... It does leave you with a... It's a powerful um, ending. Mm. Um, sort of makes you forget about the last 40 or so minutes that <laughs> <and> transpired before. <laughs> um, if not that scene, yeah, the outburst um, on the show was was quite powerful. Basically, any time where Austin actually gets to really kind of act a little bit was, was quite impressive. Mm. But I'd have to say those two scenes... Um, it's such a shame I can't pick out more scenes. I didn't right. mind some of the stylism stuff, but I sometimes thought it was dizzying and felt like 
uh, if you had a short attention span, you'd be very lost very quickly because yeah. it would be dizzying at times. I did I did laugh because this, along with Everything Everywhere, were the only films me and Kirsty have seen in cinemas. And I keep apologizing for picking like overstimulating, yeah. fast-paced movies. <laughs> it's like, let's watch Petite Maman one day. Yeah. There's like, or Roma, there's like 20 shots in that film. <laughs> it's yeah. much more slower pace. So they'd be the two yeah. I'd pick, I'd fair say. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, yeah. Elvis is currently out in cinemas near Mm. you. Speaking of the old cinemas, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? It's a a fun week this week, Zeke. You've got Netflix, The Sea Beast, which is a CG animated film that sees a legendary sea monster hunter who must team up with a young girl who stowed away on the ship. Uh, From the team that delivered uh, Moana, jeez, my goodness, and Big Hero 6. So I know those are quite Mm well-renowned films. And I've got to say... The trailer must have come from the same trailer house as the Uncharted movie. Literally, like, the pacing, the shot progression, and the music, especially, like, the sort of the, the big, like, bombastic beats of the action before it goes to a comedic beat and then rinse and repeat. I was like, this is literally the same pacing as the Uncharted trailer. I want to edit it together, but... Anyway, but the film itself, Sea Beast, looks fine. Looks yep. all right. Coming to San, you've got films like I, Tonya, The Hateful Eight, The Road, and the Sicario sequel. Have you ever seen the Sicario sequel? Yep. Dave yep. Soldado? Yeah, yeah. I, gotta, I gotta watch that. It's okay. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> it's not quite Nothing the original. Nothing special, no. Sheridan's had a tough tough run, the last two. Yeah. Between that and... Um, the new one, the, Those Who Wish, wish me, me Dead. dead. Yeah. Oh, it is what it is. <laughs> Coming to Binge, you've got Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Her... As along other films, her obviously we did that in the podcast mm-hmm. episode fifty six, I want to say, or fifty five. That was fifty five. Yeah. It was a director's corner. Coming to Disney Plus this week, you've got a National Geographic piece that covers the diverse landscape and amazing animals that inhabit North America, as narrated by Michael B. Jordan. Mm. Looking to begin some narration work. And finally, coming to cinemas, we have Four Love and Thunder, which sees the titular hero as he embarks on a quest for inner peace. That, however, is interrupted when Gore the God Butcher, played by Christian Bale, seeks the extinction, my goodness, of the gods, plus Natalie Portman, who's also in this again. What was, what was the other... Oh, it's, it's like Toy Story, where, the, where the, the love interest is in the first, second, and fourth film, but not the third, with Natalie Portman. True. And then Bo yeah. Peep. There I made that go. connection the other day. Natalie Portman is Bo Peep, confirmed. <laughs> Confirmed. I. What are you feeling? How are you feeling? I. I mean, look. I. I'm gonna probably see it because Taika Waititi, and it looks colorful and fun in that way. But also, I literally have no idea what Marvel films come out after this. Literally, have no clue. Yeah, I'm gonna try and dust off Shang Chi and Eternals and the Strange One and all those. Hopefully, it sounds like a horrible week. time. <laughs> next week or two. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, uh, I've never seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. That one. Yeah, that seems uh, coming to binge. I am much more curious to see that as well. So uh, maybe we don't have to go to the cinemas this week. But if you really do want to go to the cinemas and aren't a huge Marvel fan, you've also got Sundown, which is a Tim Roth film. I talked a little bit about it uh, two weeks ago on the podcast, but that goes wide on Thursday the 7th. You have The Villa, which is also known as Retirement Home. So I guess different names in different regions. That's okay. Mm. It sees a young convict forced to work in a retirement home and develop an unlikely friendship with the larger-than-life group of retirees who are reluctant to accept him. And finally, you've got the Revelation Film Festival, which is kicking up 
starting this Thursday the 7th with uh, Sissy, I think is the sort of mm. the big opening of the festival. Uh, other films include 18 and a half, which I think is a play on eight and a half, if I had to guess. After Blue, Make Me Famous, Planet X, Where Is Anne Frank, and The Humans. I'm interested in seeing The Humans. Um, so those are a bunch of the films that are playing this week, and of course the festival extends for a couple more weeks. Mm-hmm. You also got short film compilations as part of that festival, including those at Backlot Perth on July 9th for Westralia Day, and those at Luna the following day with different voices and changing perspectives, which respectively cover short films, uh, short, sorry, short docos, and then changing perspectives is short dramas. Um, so there's a lot going on there. I wish I could participate in this more this year. I'm just a little too busy. Plus, I'm in Albany till Friday, so... Flex. A <laughs> little bit of a flex there, but... um, So, I'm going to miss the start of the festival, which is... Yes. It, it is what it is. Um, we'll talk a tiny bit more about the festival in a minute, but otherwise, Zeke, that is everything coming to streaming and cinemas this week. No drama as well. Back to uh, back to normal now. Now we're not doing any countdowns or anything like that. No. It's our first week out of the countdown. Very yeah. exciting. But, Zeke, are we jumping into another contemporary film? Or are we gonna are we gonna pick something a little older? Oh, well, I think we should dive into the archives. Ah, um, I like that. Yeah, like that. you know, good. it's always a bit of fun. Um, <laughs> but Jake, what are we watching next week in the show, Zeke? We're watching School of Rock. Is this Mr. Schneebly? I'm the principal here at Horace Green Prep, and we need somebody to start immediately. Hmm. So how much are we talking here? Six fifty a week. Hello, this is Ned Schneebly. Everyone, I'd like to introduce Miss Dunham's substitute. This is Mr. Schneebly. All right, look, I've got a hangover. Who knows what that means? Doesn't that mean you're drunk? No. It means I was drunk yesterday. Now, at the most prestigious prep school in the country. Yes, Tinkerbell. That poster charts everyone's performance. Where the students are rewarded for following the rules. What kind of a sick school is this? He's going to teach them a lesson. There will be no gold stars or demerits. That will rock their world. It's called Rock Band. Is this a school project? It will go on your permanent record. Hello, Harvard, yo. You, what's your name? Zach. You ever play electric guitar? My dad won't let me. Zach, do not walk away from me when I'm talking to you. What makes you mad more than anything in the world? No allowance, chores, bullies. All you bullies get out of my way, cause I am really ticked off. Dewey Finn, an amateur rock enthusiast, slyly takes up his friend's job by posing as a substitute teacher. And bearing no qualifications for it, he instead starts training the students to form a band. Zeke, you've never seen this Richard Linklater film. seen this Richard Linklater film. That's insane. First off, I would need to check, but this, by now, Richard Linklater's got to be the most covered director on this show. This is like the fifth film we would have done for him. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, gotta keep the love going. It would be the it would be, yeah, boyhood and plus the before. The whole trilogy, trilogy, yeah. That's crazy. No, I'm very excited. I grew up with School of Rock. I've seen it many, 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 many times. Uh, and so is friend of the show, Harrison Mitchell, who uh I reckon we can get on for next week's discussion, which would be really cool. That's very exciting. But yeah. until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Star Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. I'll catch you next week with School of Rock.